preach through books of the Bible, but uh, for the past three weeks and for the next three weeks, we're going to be uh, in a sermon series we're calling Sex, Gender, Marriage, and the Gospel. And so we're going to be looking at all these uh, different topics under the lens of the Gospel. So week one, we uh, preached on God creating two genders intentionally, deliberately, uh, and the goodness of that. Week two, we talked about marriage. Week three, singleness. And uh, this week, we're going to look at gifts gone wrong. We're going to look at sexual sin and idolatry. And then next week, we'll talk about homosexuality. And our final sermon in this series will be on uh, gender and church leadership. But today, we're going to be looking at gifts gone wrong. So gifts, good things God has given to us, has given to the church, has given to humanity, and how we misuse them or how we put them in the ultimate place instead of seeing them just as gifts. So these gifts that we're talking about are are things we've already covered so far in this series. So things like gender, marriage, singleness, and sex. So some of these things you maybe don't think of as gifts or think of as good things, but they are. The Bible speaks of them as if uh, God designed them for our enjoyment, designed them for our pleasure, our flourishing And if you want more details on how some of these are gifts, especially gender, marriage, and singleness, you can listen to our uh, past uh, few sermons on these if you you want to know a more extended version about why these are gifts or how they are gifts, how they are good things. But we haven't talked a lot about uh, sex yet, and so we've we've hit on it a bit in the first uh, few sermons, but um, today we're going to, seeing sex as a gift from God is going to be kind of foundational to what we're going to talk about. So just a few minutes on why sex is a gift, why it's a good thing, why it's designed by God uh, for humanity's flourishing, for uh, enjoyment. And so we have to remember that sex did not come in after the fall, did not come in after evil and sin uh, ruled uh, creation, but rather it was God's design. He chose to, to uh, give it to us. It wasn't as if God created Adam and Eve and then uh, after a while realized, oh, what are they doing? I didn't, I didn't realize that that could happen and kind of had to backpedal and, and uh, change things, but rather he chose to do it. If you remember uh, the creation account, which we've read the past few weeks, so we're not going to read again. If you remember, what God did was he created uh, paradise and he put two uh, naked humans in it and he said, enjoy This is all for you. This is a good gift. And he called them to to make babies and to fill the earth with with, uh, more and more children and grandchildren. And in this, there was no shame. There was no sin. There was no insecurity. There was no selfishness, no danger, no coercion, no abuse. Just others-focused, fulfilling, safe, intimate and frequent sex, all within the context of of lifelong commitment to each other, within the context of marriage. So just like our genders, our singleness, our marriages, sex also is a gift from God. And just like all the other gifts, it is also poisoned and corrupted by sin. So when our first parents rebelled against God in something, uh, an event we often call the fall, Sin and brokenness entered into the world and now corrupted or marred or poisoned or broke all of these good gifts that God gave us. 
many of us were probably reminded uh, recently the reality of this, of how good things can really hurt people when they are done outside of the, the, the design that God had for them. As we heard, as many of us heard and watched Professor Ford's testimony of surviving sexual abuse, we felt this, we heard this. So regardless of any of the politics surrounding it, just hearing her story as a survivor of, of sexual abuse, we as a nation were reminded of the deep pain, the deep shame, aloneness, and, and trauma that can come from a good gift being used to hurt someone and the deep pain that it can cause. And because of our sinful nature, because of us being born into sin, we're all broken. And so today's sermon is not just for the perverts or not just for the victims or not just for a certain subsection of humanity, but we're all broken and in need of healing. We've all been poisoned by sin, and it has affected everything in our lives. Our thoughts, our motivations behind what we do, our desires, our hearts, the way we view ourselves, the way we view the world, the way we view God, all of it's broken or marred or at least twisted because of sin. And this includes us being sexually and relationally broken and having our feelings in our views, our hearts, and our desires tainted by sin. So you think about these good gifts given to us by God, but when we don't use them the way that he designed, they can actually lead to great harm. So think about maybe someone gets a toaster for their birthday, really nice toaster, and they're making really great toast, and it's, it smells yummy, it's, it's going to be just wonderful, but they're doing that in a bathtub, right? So a good gift could end up really, really harming someone if they're not using it the way it was designed. Or, relatedly, you give someone a a nice uh, gift of perfume, if they start drinking it, right, using a gift not the way it was supposed to be used, it can cause great harm. So, relatedly, these gifts, gender, marriage, singleness, and sex, when used in uh, different ways than God designed, leads to horrible pain and, and hurt Things like infidelity and sexual abuse and sex trafficking and pornography, divorce, prostitution, one-night stands, lust, etc., etc. So as, as you can see, just by spelling out how using the good gifts, how using them incorrectly can lead to sin, we can just see that sexual sin is a big deal. It's a really big deal. It's very harmful and leads to horrible, evil things. Sexual sin is a big deal because not only is it sinning against God, we're going to talk about that in just a second, but sexual sin is such a big deal because it hurts people. It hurts ourselves as well as others. It leads us to leaving Jesus, and it ends in hell. So even though sin, sexual sin does hurt other people, we'll get to that in just a second, ultimately all of our sin, including including sexual sin and idolatry, is sin against God himself, against the creator of these gifts, against our own creator. In Romans 1, we kind of get a summary of humanity, a summary of what was going on uh, with us uh, rebelling against God, or just our, our state apart from Christ. 
In Romans 1, we read, For although they knew God, although humanity knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. So even though they knew God, humanity did not honor him as God, did not worship him as God, did not see him as the the good and perfect sustainer and creator of of the universe, nor did they thank him. They didn't see all the good gifts that God gave them and offer thanks. But rather, they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images or idols. We'll come back to the idea of worshiping idols a little bit later on in the sermon. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, what was God's response? God gave them up to a a debased mind to do what ought not be done. So what ought not be done? We're going to look at that. We're going to look at sexual sin, us rejecting God, his rule, not thanking him for his gifts, and rather uh, using his gifts in in ways that bring dishonor and, and shame and pain and sin against him. So Jesus talked a lot about this, right? So if this next part makes you mad, talk to Jesus. I'm just just the messenger here. But Jesus talked about sin, and, and look at the type of language that he used. He says, You have heard that it was said, do not commit adultery, so do not cheat on your spouse. But I tell you, everyone who looks at a woman to lust for her has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, gouge it out and throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of the parts of your body than for your whole body to go into hell. So strong words. Strong words from Jesus. He says, uh, lust and sexual sin, not just something you can kind of manage, not just something that doesn't really affect uh, the rest of your life or your eternal state even. But he even says lust is a sin. He even says looking at someone and, and turning them into just an object, to dehu- dehumanize them, to undress them in your mind, to do sexual acts with them in your thoughts and in your hearts, that's a sin. Obviously, different consequences between doing it in your heart and your mind and actually acting out at it. But Jesus says it's just as bad. You're just as condemned. You're just as liable to go to hell because of your lust. So maybe you haven't actually cheated on a spouse. Maybe you actually haven't committed adultery. But we've all lusted in our hearts. And Jesus says this sin, such a big deal. Such a big deal that it's worth cutting off a body part in order to save yourself from going to hell. It's a big deal, so big that we should go to great, sacrificial, painful lengths to kill that sin. And Jesus reminds us, too, that that sexual sin leads us someplace. It ends with us going to hell. Whether that's because unrepentant sin all leads to hell, or whether that's because sexual sin kind of has a a unique way of of blinding people or misleading people. And so people run after sexual sin, and they kind of just don't care about their, their Lord and Savior anymore and abandon Christ. So Jesus says sexual sin is a big deal. 
And he reminds us that we're slaves to our sin. In John 8, 34, Jesus uh, says, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. So we're not just tempted with sexual sin, which we are, but we're also slaves to it. Apart from Christ, we can fight it off for a while, but we will always return. Or we'll just replace that sin with another sin, or that idol with another idol. On our own, our motives are corrupted. Our hearts deceive us. Our passions and desires, they betray us. Apart from Christ, we will always eventually come back to our sin. It's our master. It owns us. And it doesn't just stay small or confined to one part of our life. It's not just a small area of our thought life, or it's not just a few minutes a day in a locked room or or something like that. Rather, Jackie Hill Perry reminds us that sin, when in the body, cannot stay put. It's not a guest that stays in one room, making sure not to disturb others. It is a tenant that lives in everything and goes everywhere. It can bleed into every part, choking out anything holy. So not only does Jesus say sexual sin is a big deal, something we should kill in our life, we should work incredibly hard to fight against and to be careful about, but the New Testament says so as well. 1 Corinthians uh, 6 says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous who will, uh, will not inherit the kingdom of God? So if you're wondering, who are these unrighteous that don't inherit the kingdom? Who are these unrighteous that go to hell instead of God's kingdom? He defines it here. He says, do not be deceived. Do not be deceived, church. These are the type of people that will not inherit God's kingdom. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor the drunkards, nor the revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So look how it's described here. People who do sexual immorality, people who are idolaters. So it's not just Jesus that says that sexual sin can can bring you to hell, lead you to hell, but it's all throughout the New Testament. We see it here in 1 Corinthians 6, it's in Galatians 5, 1 Timothy 1, Ephesians 5, Revelation 11, again and again and again, reminders to the church, sexual sin, just like all sin, but sexual sin leads to hell. It's a big deal. It's not something to just shrug off lightly, but it's something that leads to hurting other people and hurting ourselves and leads us often to rejecting Jesus. Continual, unrepentant sin leads to hell. I can see that or you can probably say, okay, I see that sexual sin's a big deal. I see that it's all over the New Testament, especially, but why? You might be asking. Or at least you're just hearing this in your ears. You're hearing, well, my culture says all the time, well, it's not really that big a deal. Turn on your TV, your computer, your smartphone, talk to anyone, and they're saying it's not really that big of a deal. Jesus, a little too extreme here. I'm not really hurting anyone. It's just an image, it's just a video, it's just a fantasy, 
It's just in my mind. How can that be wrong? Or we're two consenting adults. No one's getting hurt. We're both adults. We both want to do this. How can this be wrong? So to answer the question, why is sexual sin such a big deal? First of all, we said it's it's sinning against God. So on top of sexual sin uh, being arrogantly disobeying the creator of these gifts, why is it such a big deal? Well, it hurts people, like we said. It hurts ourselves and it hurts others. So whether through porn or a one-night stand or infidelity or adultery or lust or abuse or manipulation, sexual sin always hurts people. There's always a victim. If you want more on this in more detail, we're not going to spend a ton of time on this, but we preached on this in a bunch of different ways. So if you want more detail, you can uh, go on our website and uh, listen to sermons from uh, our Genesis series, Genesis 12. We preached on sex trafficking, Genesis 34 on rape and uh, revenge and murder. In Judges 19, a different sermon series, we preached on a horrible uh, abuse, rape, murder, uh, as well as this summer we preached about the Me Too movement and about the abuse of power in our big question series. So feel free to listen to any of those if you want more detail on exactly how it hurts people or, or more than I just say here. But sexual sin hurts people because it dehumanizes them. It objectifies them. It says you are not a person made with, with incredible worth because you're made in the image of God, but you're just an object. You're just a means to an end. It disgraces the image of God in the victim. So if sex was created for lifelong, healthy, others-focused marriage between a man and a woman, then doing anything outside of that will bring harm, will bring spiritual harm, relational harm, emotional harm, and often even physical harm. It's like drinking perfume. It's a good gift, but when it's not used the way it's supposed to, whether it's, whether it's drunk or whether it's pouring on your eyeballs or whatever, it's going to lead to pain and to hurt. So sexual sin is such a big deal because it hurts people. But not just that. As we were reminded last week, a uh, quote from Sam Albury, he, he said, healthy marriages show us the shape of the gospel. Singleness shows us the sufficiency of the gospel. So anything outside of, of those things tells the wrong story. Anything outside of the way God designed it, it's not just neutral, but it's actually telling a lie, telling an anti-gospel. So any and all kinds of sexual sin are telling lies, are telling the opposite of the gospel, whether we realize it or not. So if our lives, our gender, our marriage, our singleness, if they all have greater meaning than any type of sexual sin, tells the wrong story, defames the gospel. It lies to others. Throughout the Old Testament, God uh, describes himself as a good husband, as a perfect husband, loving his people, loving his, his spiritual wife. And then in the New Testament, it becomes even more clear when Jesus uh, uh, dies on the cross and is raised from the grave. The New Testament looks at that and says, uh, the point of marriage, ultimately, is to show how Christ loves his church, how he died for his church, how he protects his church, how he provides for it, and then the church's response back to that. Ephesians 5, one place we see that in the New Testament, 
Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So that's marriage. Verse 32, this mystery, marriage, is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. So in anything outside of a healthy, lifelong, committed uh, marriage between a man and a woman is seen, it declares a false gospel. So if husbands are supposed to resemble Christ, to be Jesus-type figures in their marriage, and to show how Jesus loves his church, and wives are supposed to respond to that and show and image and reflect how the church responds to Jesus and his love, then anything outside of that tells the wrong story. Let's look at examples of how this plays out. So if a husband cheats on a wife, what story does that tell? It tells that Jesus will cheat on us, the church, his bride, his wife. What story does that tell? It tells a story that Jesus will leave us when we're not performing well enough or when we're not pleasing him. It tells a story that Jesus will ditch us so we better be perfect or else he's gone. Or what about the flip side? A wife cheating on her husband. What story does that tell? Well, it says that Jesus really isn't worth our fidelity. We don't need to be faithful to him. We can kind of use him to get some good things out of him. And when we want something else, we can disregard him. He's great enough to be married to initially, but something better will come. And it'll be worth pursuing and leaving him. Or other ways, sexual sin tell the wrong story. When a guy commits sexual sin outside of marriage, when he doesn't worry about marrying this gal, but just commits all kinds of sexual sin with her, just uses her, what story does that tell? It tells an anti-gospel that says Jesus just uses us while we can please him, that he's not in it for the long haul, that he's got no commitment to you, and that you might not last. And the more he gets to know you, will show whether or not you're worth it, whether or not he should commit to you. Or what, what story does a woman lusting after porn, what story does that share? And again, most of these you can flip around and say that part as well. But uh, a woman lusting after porn. So if women are, are supposed to be church figures, if that's happening, what story does that tell? It says, well, we can take from Jesus and never give anything back. We don't care about him, but rather we only see him as a means to an end. We don't have a relationship with, with him, but rather tell him, serve me or else I'll move on to something better. Or any type of sexual abuse, sex trafficking, prostitution. So in this example, it's usually a man being the abuser and the, uh, a woman being abused. So if that's the case, what story does that sin tell? It says that Jesus doesn't love you fully. He doesn't love you sacrificially. He's only using you to get to something. He will hurt you, he will manipulate you, and he will take from you. Jesus is not loving, but rather he's someone to be terrified of and someone you can never truly love. So sexual sin is not just bad because it's sin against God or because it hurts other people. It actually tells false gospels. It tells lies. So our sexuality, our marriages, our singlenesses, our singleness, our genders can all tell a story and do all tell a story. It either tells a story of Christ's love and sacrifice 
for his church and the way the church responds to that, or it tells a false gospel. So we can use the gifts in a way that they weren't designed to be used, which leads towards ourselves and others getting hurt, leads towards the wrong story being told. And these sins that we talked about are quite obvious. Most people, even non-Christians, would say, yeah, infidelity, probably not a good thing. Sex trafficking, really bad thing. Sexual abuse and rape, really bad things. And they are. But there is an, or, and there is another way that we use these good gifts from God in the wrong way that still leads to the same thing. Us and others getting hurt in the wrong story being told. And that is us making our gifts into idols or taking things that are supposed to be gifts and seeing them as more important than the giver of these gifts. The Bible has a word for this. It's called idolatry or worshiping idols, worshiping false, fake gods, or worshiping something more than God or taking something and putting it in ultimate place where God is supposed to be. So even if you don't have a carved image of wood or stone in your living room that you're bowing down to, we still worship things over God. We, who is the only one that is deserving of being worshipped? So let's go back to that Romans 1 passage. We're going to read a couple more verses than we read earlier. So this is how the New Testament describes what idolatry is. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images or for idols. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie. And they worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. So even with good things, even with the gifts, sex, gender, marriage, and singleness, we often put them in the ultimate place in our lives. Or to use Romans 1 language, we worship them, we worship the created thing, we worship the gift rather than the giver of the gift. We worship, we worship creation rather than creator. The one who loves us and gave us these gifts and who these gifts actually point back to and remind us of his love. And so we don't, we don't just uh, take these gifts and abuse them and misuse them into things like sexual sin, but we also do it by making them into idols. And so the way that this plays out is, is things like this. We value extreme independence and self-sufficiency. So singleness being a gift can turn into an idol when we say, I am completely self-sufficient by myself. I don't need anyone. I want to be all by myself and to get our full identity in that. Or other ways we take a good gift and make it into an idol would be to see marriage as God, marriage as ultimate. Or in getting our ultimate identity in our gender or our sexual orientation or our relationship status. So just like we saw with sexual sin, idolatry leads to the same thing. Idolatry leads to people being hurt, ourselves and others, and it leads to us telling the wrong story, an anti-gospel. And it would also lead us away from Jesus and into hell. Let's look at this. How does idolatry, how does it hurt people? First, 
an example of, of marriage as God. So how do, we, how do we do this? How do we hurt people through idolatry? By taking marriage and making it ultimate. By taking marriage and seeing that as the most important thing in our life. Making it our God. The way that we do this, it might be something like we want a spouse who knows us perfectly and still accepts us. Who will give us continual, unconditional love who will support us and affirm us and empower us in everything. And what that actually does is it puts unbelievable, impossible pressure and expectations on your spouse. When you want your spouse to do what only God can do, they're crippled, they're crushed. Only God can do that. And so when we put those expectations on our marriage or on our spouse, it hurts us. And it hurts others. We must remember that marriage is just a shadow of the reality. It's a reflection of God's love for us. And God is not just what the gift symbolizes, which he is, but he's also the giver of that gift himself. Other ways that idolatry hurts people. So related to gender, or sexual orientation, or relationship status, if we have that as our ultimate identity it will cripple us when we lose it we were designed to get our identity from something but it's not from these things it's not from the gifts we're designed to get our identity from our relationship with christ and unlike other identities our identity in christ who we are in relationship to jesus christ is secure it is an identity that cannot change it cannot be lost it cannot be stolen it cannot be taken from us but when we put our identity in other things, it will disappoint. A gift cannot do what only God can do. So if the center of who you are, the center of your identity is that you're a, a husband or a wife, you're going to be crushed. You're going to crumble when your spouse dies or if you get divorced. Or if at the center of who you are is an incredibly self-sufficient, independent I don't need help from anyone type of person, if that's your ultimate worth, if that's at the center of who you are, what happens when you lose that? What happens when the, the markets crash or you lose your job or you get in a car accident and you're now in a wheelchair? We cannot make our identities in something that was not supposed to give us identities. Gifts. We cannot do that. It hurts us and it hurts others. Making good gifts into ultimate things or into idols leads to pain. Always leads to pain. Identity, adultery hurts people. Hurts us. It hurts our loved ones. And not only does idolatry hurt people, but it also tells the wrong story. It tells a false gospel. So how does it do that? Marriage, right? If we say marriage is God, how does that tell the wrong story? If we're living as if the most important thing in the world is marriage, or the most important thing in your life is marriage, how does that tell yourself, your spouse, people watching, how does that tell the wrong story? Well, if marriage is God, or, or marriage idolatry, we could call it, what that says is that a shadow is all that there is. That a gift is enough. We don't need the gift giver. It tells the lie that there is nothing outside of just this earthly reality, this temporal 
reality. Or what about idolatry where we get our identity in other things? Like our gender or our sexual orientation or our relationship status. How does that tell the wrong story? It says, if we get our ultimate identity in these things, in these gifts, it says God is wrong. It says God's a liar. Or it says God made a mistake when he made me. It says God isn't trustworthy. It says I give myself meaning and I can choose what defines me, not God. And it says what I feel is of utmost importance, not what God says. Or what about extreme independence where someone says, I don't need anyone. I am fine all by myself. I am self-sufficient. I can take care of myself. I don't need anyone. How does that tell a lie? How does that tell a false gospel? It says, I am sufficient on my own. I don't need God. I can save myself. I've done fine all by myself in this real life. And so I'll be fine spiritually and eternally as well. Making gifts into little gods, into idols, will hurt people. And will tell a false gospel to the watching world and to yourself. But even after a sermon that the majority was condemnation, condemnation, sin, sin, rebuke, rebuke, warning, warning, we end with hope. We end with the gospel. The good news that when contrasted with all that bad news is even greater news. And in the gospel, there is hope. In the good news of Jesus' death in our place, in his resurrection, there is hope. There is hope both for the abuser and for the abused. There is hope for the porn addict and the one who has made their marriage into an ultimate thing. There is hope for the adulterer and the person that is getting their full identity from their same-sex attraction. There is hope for the prostitute and for the pimp and the john. There is hope for the person who is imprisoned by their self-focus. And there is hope for those who have been disregarded and abandoned. There is hope for those of you who have gone to a prostitute or massage parlor or a strip club. And there's hope for you who have used your bodies in ways to just survive. No one is beyond hope. Jesus offers hope, forgiveness, and unconditional love to everyone. No exceptions. Don't today at all think, well, I'm the one exception. Don't at all think, well, yeah, but Spencer or Jesus doesn't know my story, doesn't know what I've done, doesn't know where, mine, where my mind goes to, doesn't know what's been done to me. There's hope in the gospel. No exceptions. Believe that today. Remind yourself that again and again and again. Jesus lived the perfect life that we could never live. Jesus died the death that we deserved because of our sin and our rejection of him and his good gifts. He rose from the grave, defeated our enemies of Satan, sin, and death. And if we put trust in him alone, we can be saved. We can have our sins forgiven. We can have a new identity. We can be declared clean and pure and innocent and righteous. We can receive healing and restoration physically, emotionally, and spiritually. We can finally have victory over that sin that has dominated us and imprisoned us 
for years and years and years. Our hearts, minds, and actions, for as long as we can remember, can, can finally move from broken to restored. We can be reconciled to our Creator. We can have meaning in our life. We can start over. And there truly is hope and victory over sexual sin and idolatry because Jesus is stronger than our sin. Remember that passage that we looked at a little bit earlier today that described how sinful, idolatrous people won't be in the kingdom? Listen to how this passage ends. So remember, it starts by saying, all these sinners, they will not inherit the kingdom of God. And listen how it ends. And such were some of you. But that's not you anymore. You were banished from God's kingdom. That was you. But it's not you anymore. And such were some of you. Past tense. But now... You have been washed. You are clean. You are made pure. You have been sanctified. And you, uh, you were justified. You're declared innocent. In the name of the Lord Jesus and by the Spirit of our God. Jesus died for your porn addiction. Jesus died for the affair that you had. Jesus died for the abuse that you suffered. The one night stands, the sexual sin the dehumanizing lust that has filled your heart and mind. Jesus died for the pride that you've had in an identity apart from your identity in Christ. Jesus died for any way that you've misused a good gift that he has given you. Jesus' heart and his forgiveness is offered both to the victimizers and the victims, the abusers and the abused. For those who have misused God's good gifts, and those who have idolized them. And because of the gospel, now through the gospel, through Jesus' death and resurrection, if we put our trust in that, this is how God gives us hope. We're given a new life and a new identity in Christ. Galatians 2 speaks about uh, the old person, the old person that was enslaved to sexual sin, the old person that couldn't help it, but be an idolater over and over again. That old person is dead. And now in Christ, we are alive. That Christ now lives within us. We have a new life. That old life is gone. We have a new identity. 2 Corinthians 5 speaks about this too. It says, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. So in the gospel, we are given a new life. We're given a new identity. We're also given the Holy Spirit, the same spirit that empowered Jesus to live a perfect life. Even though he was tempted in every way that we are tempted, yet without sin, that same spirit is within you. If you are a Christian, we are given the spirit, the same spirit that helped Jesus to see these gifts the way that they're supposed to be seen, to not use them and miss misuse them and abuse them, nor to make them ultimate, nor to make them into idols. That same spirit is within you. And finally, not only do we have a new life and identity in Christ, not only are we given the spirit, but we're also given the church. When we're saved, we're saved into a church, into a spiritual 
community. So you're not alone. You don't have to fight against sexual sin. You don't have to fight against idolatry all by yourself. You have the Spirit and you have the church. You have God's people surrounding you. So because we're talking about these gifts of of sex and marriage and gender and singleness and how we misuse them and abuse them and make them into idols, let's look at this last one and unpack just a little bit. Last thing we do here uh, this morning, let's look and see how a gospel-centered church, a church that sees these gifts as gifts and, and values them in their right place, let's see how a church like that leads to all people thriving. Male and female, single and married, no matter what or how someone's sexuality is broken or incomplete. So let's look at that. How does a gospel-centered church that, that correctly views these gifts, how is that the best place for healing and, and flourishing for everyone? First of all, it's a safe place. A gospel-centered church is a safe place where people are protected the weak and the strong, the young and the old, both genders, all relationship statuses are safe and protected. Because in a gospel-centered church, we preach and we teach that all those with power and authority are supposed to use it just as Christ did, which is sacrificially, and with the purpose, with the goal, that others would flourish. So when that's not happening, when power is used to, to hurt and to abuse It's sinful. It's wrong. So in a church that preaches this and understands this, people will be safe. People will be protected. And when sin does happen with with power and and authority, it will be called out. In uh, 1 John 3.16, we read, By this we know love, that he, that Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for each other, for the church. Also, a gospel-centered church is a place where all can be empowered. The Holy Spirit doesn't discriminate when gifting believers. The Holy Spirit is in all believers, and he gives all believers gifts. So all Christians, all genders, all, all ages, all relationship statuses are given gifts. So all are empowered. And they all receive these unique spiritual gifts, so, so we don't earn. We don't earn more spiritual gifts because we're one gender or not. We don't earn more spiritual gifts because we're married or because we're not. They're given, all given, to build up the body. Relatedly, the Spirit empowers all believers for the good works that God has prepared for them to walk in. We read this in Ephesians 2.10. For we are his workmanship, Christians, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And then finally, a gospel-centered church is a safe place, a place for everyone to thrive and to grow and to be appreciated, cherished, and needed. If if the genders are completely interchangeable, if there's no distinction between male and female, then we don't need the other gender to have a church, right? But if, if genders aren't interchangeable, if God intentionally made male and female, then we need both genders. Then a church cannot be healthy, cannot thrive, can meet, can't meet its mission, can't disciple unless we have both genders there. So men and women are different. 
Marrieds and singles, in some ways, are different. And those differences should be celebrated as God designed, as God made, as intentional and deliberate. Your masculinity or your femininity is not an accident. God was behind that in his, in his love, in his sovereignty, in his design. In our, our marriages, our, single, our singleness, our sex, and our genders, we're all God-designed and intended for something bigger than ourselves. So when a church that celebrates all kinds of diversity, gender, relationship status, etc., everyone will be appreciated and cherished and needed rather than seen with contempt or seen with, with, with jealousy or inferiority or seen as unnecessary. The church needs both men and women to fulfill the mission. God designed two genders. We need both genders to, to meet our mission of spreading the gospel and to make disciples and to fully image our God. Kind of back to week one of this series. If uh, a bunch of you guys were at the men's retreat yesterday, if, if you weren't there, we missed you. Um, but we had a great time of like 55 of the guys gathering together for some really great stuff. But like Chris said, he preached after last year's men's retreat. Like he said last year, we were, not, we were not the church yesterday. It was really great, but we were not the church. Not only because we didn't have, you know, 30, 40 of our guys, but also because we didn't have our sisters in Christ. And so we need both genders. The church is incomplete, insufficient without both genders. And we need marrieds. We need singles. So as we leave here today, let's praise God for this great gift that he's given us, the church, and how it uniquely cherishes and protects and empowers uh, all genders and all relationship statuses. Let's praise God for that. Let's thank God that he gives us good gifts, that he rescues us from both using them sinfully as well as making them into idols, making them into ultimate. And that in his salvation, he gives us everything we need to thrive and to be healed. He gives us a new identity in life. He gives us the Holy Spirit living within us. And he gives us the safety and the help of his body, the church. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this great news, this great news that's so countercultural, that's so different than what uh, the world is telling us. God, we thank you that in, in such confusing times and confusing matters, God, that you want to give us clarity, that you uh, want us to know that our gender, our relationship status, our singleness, our uh, the, the, the sex that we're participating in is, is good. Uh, it's gifts from you. It's something you, d you designed and that you have uh, intentionality behind. And God, help us to trust you. I know a lot of this kind of just lands on, do we trust that what you said is good? Do we trust that your design is good? Do we trust that the way you want this to play out is good and what's best for us? And we often don't believe that. So God, change our hearts. Help us to trust in you and help us to be a church that is a safe place, that cherishes all different kinds of people, that protects uh, the weak, a church that uh, is, is a safe place for people to confess sin and to be healed and to 
fight against uh, sexual sin and idolatry. God, this is, this is so overwhelming apart from you. And so we need you. We need your spirit. We need this new life that you offer through Christ. We need your church. And we thank you that you give us those uh, graciously. You give us those uh, without us earning. They, they are gifts. And so we thank you for this, uh, God. Pray this in your, your great name, Jesus.